Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Welcome everybody to The Metabolic Link podcast. Today, we are extremely honored and lucky uh, to have Dr. Jeff Volick from Ohio State University. Uh, Jeff is a pioneer in low-carb diets and ketogenic diets, and for the last two decades, Dr. Volek has been performing cutting-edge research on humans, how they adapt to carbohydrate-restricted diets, with a dual focus on clinical and performance applications of nutritional ketosis. His scholarly work includes more than 300 peer-reviewed scientific manuscripts, five books, including a New York Times bestseller, and he's provided more than 200 lectures at scientific industries and conferences around the world. Uh, this is an older bio, so it's probably even more than that now. Dr. Volick is also a co-founder and former uh, chief scientific officer for Verda Health. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Hey, Dom. It's great to see you and glad to be here. Yeah. So uh, I, I recent in preparation for this, and uh, I had listened to it immediately when it came out because Dr. Ken Ford sent it to me to send around, but you recently did a podcast with I, the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition podcast called STEM Talk, and that's episode number 149. And you covered a vast array of the different research projects that you have going on. Uh, so we'd like to direct people to that podcast because it was a tremendous uh, resource. So this episode is going to touch on some of those topics, but we're also going to hit a bunch of topics maybe outside that. And, uh, and also we had a bunch of people who follow you send in questions uh, for you to answer some of them, you know, loaded questions that I think uh, will have a really good engaging conversation on and some of the things that are more controversial in the field, the questions wrong. But before we delve into the questions, I had a question for you. I mean, regarding for me, mentors were like a huge part of my scientific career. And I was curious as to like, who were your mentors early on that guided you down this path? And in your career, you know, you've inspired so many people, you know, me included, and a whole list of people, not only in our lab, your books are like mandatory reading material in our lab, but I just wondered, you know, who were the early influences on you and how did they guide you down a career path in nutrition that's really against the grain when it comes to like nutritional guidelines. And you were also trained and people might know this as a registered dietitian too. So how did you get guided down this path? Yeah. I mean, that's really a great question, Dom. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. <laughs> great. You're right. I mean, mentors are, are just really critical uh, yeah. in anyone's life um, to kind of guide you and inspire you. Um, uh, and it's, it was challenging and low carb because there weren't that many people studying it back in the 90s and, and early 2000, which would, uh, it was when I was really starting in this space and uh, developing myself as a scientist. But I had, I, I'll just point out two important people that I think stand far and above others. Um, one was my major advisor um, in graduate school for both my master's and PhD, uh, Bill Kramer. Uh, now he wasn't a nutritionist yeah. or um, dietitian. I mean, he was, he's world famous, uh, you know, for studying resistance training. So my, my PhD is in exercise physiology and the lab is uh, 
very uh, active in studying all sorts of different physiological responses to resistance yeah. exercise. So I had and a lot of creatine too, yeah. right, Jeff? Didn't you study creatine? Yeah, I, that yeah. yeah. Creatine I mean, right that's, now. Really, that's where I <laughs> cut my teeth in science. Yeah, it was yeah. creatine. And that that's was just right. timing. I started in 1992 uh, uh, as a wow. master's student. And um, that's the same time that publication came out showing that creatine loading increased uh, muscle creatine levels. Uh, that was actually 90, yeah, I think it was 91 or 92. And that just started everything. After that study, yeah. everybody then you know, was doing studies to see how it affected performance. And we were we were the first lab to really study resistance exercise. So I got really sort of uh, you know excited about being uh, able to do that and yep. published a few papers and suddenly became kind of an expert overnight. Yeah, uh, which gave me a lot of confidence as a you know young budding scientist uh, to be able to do that. Uh, but, you know, Bill Kramer's lab, we were very active in resistance exercise. And I was kind of the only person really with an RD in the lab and brought the nutrition expertise. And what I really value uh, from him was that he gave me a long leash and allowed me to pursue things like creatine. Super important. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> and eventually low carb. So creatine was my yep. master's thesis. And then, uh, you know, I did a ketogenic intervention study for my PhD dissertation. Yeah. And a lot of studies, you know, in between, but, um, you know, that was just him allowing me to be me and yeah. pursue these things. And, uh, so just a lot of, uh, you know, mentorship in terms of being a scientist, but not so much, particularly in the low carb space. I was kind of on my own there because yeah. uh -huh. he wasn't in that circle. He, you know, his colleagues were in the resistance training exercise. I training. wondered about that. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, you know, hugely important in my my career. And the other person that really filled the space of the, the ketogenic expertise was Steve Finney. And, and yeah. uh, you know, we we uh, met. I think um, I guess the first time was probably in the early two thousand. Um, and then we kind of you know hit it off and had a lot of chemistry and were collaborating and uh, writing books and writing manuscripts together. Uh, but he just brought an encyclopedia of knowledge, you know, around nutritional biochemistry yeah. and ketogenic diets that, um, you know, is unparalleled even today. So, yeah. uh, you know, um, huge uh, role in my um, career development. And, you know, um, so those two people clearly stand out as far as people that I admire and uh, yeah. a huge role in my development. I love how you guys too, in your talk and, and Steve's talk, uh, you have an appreciation for the history of research in metabolism and exercise science. And uh, yeah, it's so important to to be a mentor, to give your mentees uh, a certain level of freedom so they can go down their path, you know, and, and carve their own path. And then I learned so much from my students, my PhD students, you know, they've taught me a, a lot of different things. Uh, I remember giving talks like, don't even approach this if you're, can, if you're type, if you have type one diabetes, you know, and then Andrew Kutnick entered the lab, he studied cancer cachexia, but he was type one diabetic. And I watched him, you know, transition to low carb ketogenic and go from some dangerous lows that he had uh, to just like, you know, his CGM traces were completely flat and just like being a monster in the lab in regard to productivity, energy levels, performance, things like that. So yeah, my own students kind of changed my mind on, on many different things. 
Um, and the creatine it was really interesting. I I'd heard a while back, I think it was 1992. I was playing football in high school at the time when there was a, a, a magazine muscle media 2000 or something. And they advertised the creatine. It was like right around 1992. The first issues came out. You re- might remember those. Oh yeah. And I remember buying the twin lab, twin labs creatine. It was real expensive at the time, but I was using it, you know, during my uh, senior well, year. They, yeah, they, they, they were, they, they provided a little support for our creatine work. Oh, we twin were, lab did. We were really? using yeah. 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 So yeah, I was using, I was using it in 1992 and that publication came out and I think yeah. Bill Phillips like sent me something in the mail is like, you're a special person that we saw as a, as you know, and some, I don't know how I got on the radar, but I was like one of the first people to use it, like a test batch of it or something. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. was not even on the radar, maybe in, you know, Bulgaria or, or yeah. Russia, you yeah, know, yeah. Some of the elite athletes using it, but nothing in the scientific literature on creatine and then it just exploded yep. in the early nineties. And, uh, you know, to some extent it's still going today. I mean, there's probably more research on creatine than just about any other dietary supplement. I, I, mean, I think so. Positive. I mean, yeah. it's just really incredible. Um, so yeah, I rode that wave for a decade or so. And mm-hmm. yeah, uh, well, was- I have creatine monohydrate and ketone salts in here <laughs> with a go. similar, it's salts that have the same electrolyte profile as element, the element salt, but there's beta hydroxybutyrate and creatine. So it's like my morning drink. I kind of weaned off some of the caffeine and do like half of my caffeine, but I do, uh, uh, ketone salts and electrolyte blend with creatine is like my morning staple. So, yeah, I see a lot of analogies with the kind of surge, the surgeon research on exogenous ketones yep. now. Yeah. Uh, you know, the way creatine was back in the nineties. So, yeah. You know, out a lot of people interested in studying exogenous ketones now. So yeah. you're going to see a lot of studies published over the next decade. And I know you're doing that too. I mean, there's a high level of innovation in the science you are doing, the nutritional science in your lab, probably in regards to nutrition, some of the highest level of innovation. There's also a high level of innovation in the acronyms that you guys use for, uh, so you have the faster study, the tank study stack, I think, and more recently the kind study, which is ketogenic intervention and depression. So yeah. I love the clever actor acronyms that you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we kind of, that uh, came out, but uh, yeah, uh, let's good. talk about, yeah, the OSU. You have a good acronym for your studies. Yeah. I love that. So uh, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about um, the kind study, which is ketogenic intervention in depression. And specifically you're working with college students at Ohio state university. And, uh, I had the opportunity to be on a metabolic psychiatry sort of, uh, monthly call where you shared some of the preliminary data, uh, which looked really exciting, especially the PHQ nine data, if I remember correctly. So maybe, uh, tell our listeners sort of what you're doing on the metabolic psychiatry front and some of the, if you can, some of the preliminary data on that. Yeah, I, I can, I can um, share a little bit of our um, interest in this space. So, uh, you know, I'm not by any means an expert in, in uh, psychiatry. So this is really a new area for mm-hmm. us, but uh, you know, that's what we do at Ohio state is we put multidisciplinary teams together and uh, my lab's really the expert in kind of the ketogenic interventions, whether that be ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones. So, um, you know, this this new um, area of metabolic psychiatry has just really exploded. And that's largely due to, uh, you know, Jan Ellis and Bazuki. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. The, uh, yeah. And their um, 
financial support and just their, um, you know, the energy they brought to this in terms of um, uh, really um, investing in research and uh, and trying to find answers to, to, you know, questions related to improving therapies for, for people with various mental illnesses. So I was fortunate to cross paths with her and our lab at Ohio State was one of the uh, one of the labs that received some pilot funding to do research on a ketogenic intervention. And as you mentioned, we're focused on depression. Some of the other work that they're supporting is uh, focused on bipolar and some other conditions. Um, but our work at Ohio State, yeah, so we, so we received some funding from the Bazookis. Um, thank you, uh, Jan and team there, because um, you can't do anything without money. Um, Absolutely, so especially sad. this field. Who's going to fund it? I mean, you know, bipolar. It's always been a challenge. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you, for people that aren't in science and kind of just to give you a sense, I mean, these studies to do them at a high level uh, are not cheap, especially when you're dealing with human dietary intervention studies and advanced measurements. Um, uh, It's very expensive. It's very slow. It's a very regulatory burden process. And so it's a, frustrating on many levels, uh, but also exciting because you get the opportunity to potentially move the literature forward and, you know, have some very translatable solutions for folks that will improve quality of life. So that's what kind of keeps me wanting to wake up every morning. But anyway, so yeah, we um, we, we, we were able to, to get the funding and go through all the, the regulatory process. And we actually started enrolling patients uh, earlier this year. Uh, so we're right in the middle of the study. And I, I can't really share a lot of details um, because we're we haven't really presented formally or published the results yet. Um, we've got a ways to go yet, but I will just share that um, the objective of the study is to really determine if a ketogenic intervention can have a positive effect on scores or uh, self-reported scores of depression, uh, and this is primarily in students at Ohio State University who have. Uh, major depression at baseline. So um, we've we've enrolled about a half dozen subjects so far and um, the early data, which um, involves you know surveys of depression, we're doing a lot more advanced testing too that'll come out later, such as MRI and some structural and functional MRI, um, blood work and so forth. But as far as our primary outcome, which was just depression scores, um, all of our participants had major reductions in depression that happened quite early on and were sustained out to 12 weeks. Uh, so even with a half a dozen subjects, um, we have a very strong signal, um, which, you know, we're, we kind of pitched this as a pilot study uh, yep. principle sort of thing um, to then um, help inform a larger study that you will know, probably be a randomized controlled clinical trial, maybe a comparison trial to a Mediterranean diet or some other treatment. Um, And so we're very excited by the early results so far. Uh, We get very good compliance with ketogenic diet and uh, just a lot of perceived benefit from the participants we've enrolled. Um, Mm -hmm. As I said, most notably, their depression has improved um, by a couple of different, not just, you know, these surveys, we also do extensive investigator uh, initiatives by a psychologist. And, um, and so we're, we're quite encouraged 
by mm-hmm. the results. Mm-hmm. So Can you just, here. yeah, thank you, Jeff, for sharing that. Can you describe uh, just briefly uh, what type of ketogenic diet you're using? I mean, I'm coming from the world of epilepsy research. Actually, before I got really into your research, uh, I mean, in 2008, you know, I was really in the world of epilepsy, ketogenic diets for epilepsy. And then I stumbled upon, I was like, wow, it's being used for athletic performance too, the, the art and science of low carb performance. And I, I bought ton of these books and gave it to everybody in the lab. Uh, so the, the, the clinical ketogenic diet, as it's known sort of in epilepsy is like, you know, the four to one to three to one, the modified Atkins, uh, could you describe sort of the dietary intervention for this? And then, uh, the other piece is how do you ensure, uh, compliance? So the, there's a, there's a barrier to entry for following ketogenic for some people. And I know the well-formulated ketogenic diet with an educated team, really makes the difference between whether this gets followed and implemented correctly or not. And a lot of dietary studies are done incorrectly and can lead to negative or, you know, results, suboptimal results. So maybe describe what you do different. Yeah, on that I front. mean, I guess we've, we've used the term well-formulated ketogenic diet in the past. Um, probably need to come up with a better term, but um, there, there are several principles and uh, characteristics of a ketogenic diet that we think are really important and critical to make the eating patterns safe and effective and most importantly sustainable for folks uh, because it doesn't do much good if it's so strict that you know no one can follow it so um you know that that's our approach and pretty much all our ketogenic interventions um having said that the way we implement it kind of varies depending on the research questions we do everything from highly controlled feeding studies where we provide all the food and weigh everything out to the gram all the way to you know completely free living where we just provide education and support and there's hybrid approaches too um, this is more of a hybrid approach um, but our, our kind of two overarching goals with the ketogenic intervention is because we want these to be translatable um, we want these to you know these interventions you know we want we're, we're testing both feasibility in in many ways you know can people stay on these diets and also efficacy. Um, so, um, you know, the, the two things that are really important for us is number one, people have to enjoy the diets. I mean, there has to be a certain amount of pleasure associated with it. So we're trying our best to make the diets, um, you know, enjoyable for folks. So we're catering to their food preferences and so forth. Now, obviously there's caveats. I mean, uh, we want them to be pleasurable, but they have to follow the principles. And, and one of the big principles is they have to be in ketosis. Yeah. Otherwise it's not a ketogenic Defines the diet. Diet. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's primarily, a, you know, uh, uh, related to their carbohydrate and protein intake. So we're customizing that to the individual because people vary. Um, but other than that, we, you know, we let people kind of choose their own food sources and so forth. And then we'll provide education on a personalized level and adjustments if needed, if they're not in ketosis. So that kind of answers your second question in terms of, you know, we do monitor these diets um, and the easy way to monitor compliance is by measuring ketones in folks. So we're, mm-hmm. we're measuring, uh, you know, whole blood ketones with glucometers is our primary. Yeah. And now we're starting to use, uh, continuous ketone monitoring as well. And that's yeah. thanks to Abbott. They're, they've, they've uh, you know, developed that technology that's really 
kind of a built off their CGM technology with just changing the enzyme, you know, the enzyme chemistry to monitor beta-hydroxybutyrate now. But it's a pretty exciting technology, and we've been able to access those sensors um, through their investigator-initiated study program. Now that opens up, you know, much more robust way, higher fidelity measures of ketones because you can get measures every every few minutes over the entire day while they're sleeping. Yeah. Uh, and that just provides, uh, you know, exponentially more data to monitor individual variations in compliance mm -hmm. um, for the intervention. Mm -hmm. But that's really important to know if people are in ketosis, because if you don't measure it, you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see uh, variability in with continuous ketone monitoring uh, similar to uh, continuous glucose monitoring in regards to the uh, temporal correlation with just eating or fasting and things like that. So a little bit of work we've done. Um, uh, we haven't done you know any formal uh, studies on this, but just some case studies, including myself, uh, doing a lot of finger sticks and comparing it to the, yeah. to the ketone sensor. There's a pretty striking correlation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's great to hear. It's pretty yeah. tight, and that's correlating it to the Abbott's precision extra glucometer. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, very high R R squared values. Um, so I'm impressed with the hardware. Um, yeah. I, think, I think they've got the algorithms down, and um, you're getting very reliable, accurate measures. Mm -hmm. Even though you're measuring from two different, you know, yeah. components. One is whole blood, and one's interstitial yeah. fluid. Yeah. Um, you're getting a pretty good you know, temporal correlation. Mm -hmm. uh, they set some work to do on the software app side of things, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, the hardware is pretty pretty tight. I think. Uh, do you have any experience with lactate monitoring with a uh, finger prick device or with? I think you know there uh, the Abbott uh, Libre or the. Uh, their lingo device, I think, was claiming to do beta-hydroxybutyrate, uh, glucose, and lactate. And wonder if you had any experience. A couple people using it that I know, you know, are using it. They said they're pretty impressed with it, and I've wondered if that's part of the picture. Yeah, we, yeah, we haven't, we haven't had um, any experience with the lactate or ethanol. I know they claim to have that ability yeah. to detect those. I think that wasn't their priority as far as launching this um, publicly you know, in the non-medical yeah. space that they were, they were focused on the CGM and the CKM. But um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah. Well, I think I speak for everybody in the metabolic psychiatry community when I say you're truly a gift to bring your expertise, knowledge, the ability to do these clinical trials uh, and actually test the ketogenic diet. Uh, it's people don't understand like how hard it is to do nutritional ketogenic diet research and setting up and setting up a control diet eventually, which is going to be done and doing RCTs on this is just, I mean, I come from the kind of the world of epilepsy research, but I'm a, I'm a late person coming into that. Uh, Dr. John Freeman and Eric Kossoff and others have, you know, spearheaded a lot of that, but this is very difficult research to do. And I think we can say that, you know, you're a gift to the metabolic psychiatry community. And thank you so much. For doing this research and sharing your preliminary yeah, um, results for that. I appreciate that, Dom. Yeah, nutrition intervention studies are hard and a lot of people do them sloppy and we do our best. We're not perfect. Um, yeah. But I can say we do emphasize that translational piece, which which means we don't get the high ketones levels. Like it's very hard for someone to be in the two to three to four millimolar range 
on a ketogenic diet consistently. Yeah. yeah, you can do it, but it really requires a rigid diet for uh-huh. most people to do that, especially yeah. if it's metabolically compromised in any way or mm-hmm. going through treatments that are causing metabolic disruptions. It's even harder to get into ketosis. So, um, but this is to me, what's really exciting about the uh, exogenous ketones and no one studied this yet. We're not even studying yeah. it yet, but I do think the, probably where the, the sweet spot is for many therapeutic interventions is you do a baseline ketogenic diet that, um, you know, is carb restricted and well-formulated and that'll, you know, you can do that. It's very pleasurable and you can get your ketones above 0.5, maybe even one. And then, yeah. you know, we don't know uh, if higher ketones are more therapeutic, but that's a big question, right? In the literature, and yeah. it's probably different for every condition. Uh, yeah. No simple answers there, but it's probably likely that higher ketones are going to be more beneficial for many conditions. I'm just guessing. I don't have. I totally agree. Data. I mean, yeah. from the animal research side, you know, we have standard, we, we did our, all our research standard diet, and then we just gavage ketone esters, or we integrate it into the diet specifically to answer that question. Is it the ketones or is it the carbohydrate restriction? And from, you know, a brain energy standpoint, from an anti-seizure effect, from an anti-anxiety effect, and from even an anti-cachexia effect you know, we see results across the board just on ketones, but, you know, yeah. not all yeah, would animal add, research cardiac, translates. Cardiac function to that too. You know, yeah, excellent. Yep. Response effects of ketones on cardiac function in humans. Um, but that's where, you know, if you add the ketone esters or ketone salts or, you know, on top of the ketogenic diet, you can get ketone levels that yep. maybe in that higher, higher, uh, range of nutritional ketosis and and still make the diet very enjoyable and practical for most people. Yeah. So um, a lot of ways to make this work for folks that, um, you know, you don't lose that effect, which is kind of, you know, I don't know, if get off on a sidetrack, but this is what concerns me about like some of the weight loss, you know, these GLP-1 agonists now, those MPEX, um, yeah, they're wildly effective at promoting yeah. weight loss, but you I really had a question do. about this. So you, yeah, go ahead. You lose go ahead. your enjoyment of food. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how sustainable that is um, for folks. And there could be a lot of collateral side, you know, side effects that, that are associated yeah. with that. So, you know, in, in, in the spirit of informed consent, you know, I would choose ketogenic diet every day of the week because you can lose yeah. weight and have a lot of metabolic improvement and you can still enjoy food tremendously. Um, anyway, or even just a low carb diet, perhaps, you know, one of my questions was about exogenous ketones. We, you know, more than a decade ago, we studied the free acid beta hydroxybutyrate. And I think maybe some companies selling that, uh, ketone salts, you had the sodium, and then we did some research more, more than 10 years ago. Hey, let's add potassium, calcium, magnesium, so developing sort of an electrolyte array of ketone salts, and then you have monoesters, diesters, triesters of glycerol or esters of, of 1,3-butanediol uh, esterified to beta-hydroxybutyrate or acetoacetate. So we've worked with them all and we work with MCT oil, which is kind of like we'll convert to ketones and just straight up 1,3-butanediol. So we've studied, you know, a dozen or more different compounds and they all have different, you know, effects 
But I just think that area is very fruitful area. I try not to talk about it too much because it sounds like a conflict of interest, you know, because uh, we have various, you know, projects on that. But I can tell you just from a basic science uh, standpoint, and we're doing research at Duke right now, you know, with seizures specifically. I think I think it's an area of science to really keep your attention to in the years to come. And clinicaltrials.gov has tons of research. And I know you're kind of doing research on that front too. And I'm just like a kid in a candy store. I want to talk about it, but there's a lot of stuff, you know, that I can't talk about now, but so much to unpack there. And it's, yeah, this is, this is going to be an area that's studied for the next 50, hundred years. Yep. Yep. You know, yeah. At the end of the day, if you want to do a study, you've got to pick a certain ketone. Yeah. Yeah, exogenous ketone, and and that's just the nature of you know the decision making you do in a research study. But who's to know you pick the right one? Yeah, um, and uh, there's so many different formulations. And yeah, you're you're you know you're at the tip of the spear there as far as mm -hmm. you know. And it, it varies depending on what the application. Like sometimes higher is not better. Just like high glucose is not better, you create energy toxicity. If you're giving your body, then your body has to get rid of the excess ketones. But in the context of a healthy subject and exercise performance, maybe higher is better. In the context of oxygen toxicity seizures, higher tends to be better. If I'm sitting at my desk, I would rather have a ketone salt with an electrolyte blend, you know, similar to element or whatever, but bound to beta hydroxybutyrate. And then, but I notice if my ketones get higher, I tend to get a little bit, you know, irritable or anxious. And it tends to be speed, just like if your glucose is high, you know, anecdotally, but these things need to be studied, especially in the context of metabolic psychiatry. Cause I don't think we want to bolus a high dose of ketones and cause, you know, an energetic surplus. And that could be, you know, detrimental in the context of bipolar, for example. So I think we really need to approach this in a dose dependent way. Uh, we've done so much dose dependent studies in animal models, but I think this needs to be approached very cautiously in the context of metabolic psychiatry. But I think there's huge benefits to further augmenting and enhancing the therapeutic and perhaps performance enhancing effects of the ketogenic diet, just by simply being able to titrate your ketones to whatever level. Um, so I think yeah, so I much innovation. There. Yep. I think even on a more basic level, we, you know, we need to recalibrate people's minds about ketone concentrations. Yeah. We're, yeah. You know, um, you know I, I think using terms like hypoketonemia, and you keep anemia. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I think the pretty much everybody's walking around this planet in a hypoketonemia state because they yeah, yeah. And, and I've never are, used that, but that's a great term. Abnormally low levels, and yeah, you, know, you get into nutritional ketosis. That's actually a more natural state yeah. that everybody kind of thrives under. So that's you keep yeah. anemia. And then, as yeah. you indicated, you can have too high of ketones, but that's you know probably. Yeah. quite a bit higher than what, what, um, you know, yeah. what most people would think is dangerous where they think if you have any elevation in ketones, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's could be toxic. Yeah. So um, that's just basic kind of nomenclature. And yeah, a little side comment, like sometimes I usually stay in a mild state of ketosis, but if I take a large dose of a ketone ester, my ketones get sky high up to five millimolar. But when your ketone levels acutely get above, if the delta is two millimolars or more in a short time frame, that actually stimulates insulin. 
So you have a high elevation of ketones and then the ketone induced increase in insulin facilitates glucose disposal. So you see your blood glucose go down and then two or three hours later, the ketones clear from your system, but you become hypoketotic and hypoglycemic. And then that can give me a headache. So this was some of the early, you know, when I'm chugging this stuff in the lab more than 10 years ago, some early observations that try to get my ketones, you know, five or six. So I take a much more nuanced approach. And I think, you know, just boosting it one millimolar creates a noticeable difference. And I think, I think that's important to appreciate too, especially in the context of, you know, psychiatry and things like that. It's important yeah. not to cause it metabolic dysregulation. Yeah. I think, you know, just the protocols for how you, how you dose this stuff and uh, yep. formulations that might be more sustained release. I mean, all that needs to be unpacked and studied yep. in, in different ways because it can have very different biological, physiological effects. Absolutely. Even at, even at the same total dose, depending on how it's spread out and formulated. Yep. Yeah, that's what I say, yep. you know, Don, we're going to be retired before a lot of these answers probably come. No. Through. Yeah. It, uh, it's just yeah. very much in our infancy and yeah, in this, but I, I will say, you know, it's not going to go backwards now that, that I'm pretty sure of like, there's too much positive research out there and there's just too much, you know, hypothetical benefit to, uh, to all of this yep. for it to, uh, you know, to be shoved under the rug, like it has in yep. the past. So, uh, you know, good times ahead. Yep. Well, I have, I have a lot of questions from your fans here, but, uh, and different people that asked me to, to ask you some, some pretty cool questions here. Uh, but before I do that, I want to sort of ask, are there any emerging applications of ketogenic diets that you're excited about? Uh, I know you've done so much work on the type two diabetes front, uh, on the cancer front too. Uh, we did have a question, a couple questions about traumatic brain injury and another question about Parkinson's disease. So, um, have you, are you working in those two areas and, and what, what specific areas do you think are most are very fruitful for ketogenic interventions? Yeah. Well, I think pretty much everything is fruitful. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting about this space. And it makes you sound a little bit kind of quacky. Uh, I, I know I hear you. <laughs> um, there's just so much benefit to uh, improving your, you know, your overall metabolism and fuel flow uh, all the way to the genetic level. So uh it's not surprising um, when you think about most chronic diseases being nutrition related that you actually can affect just about everything. Um, but, you know, in terms of what we're studying in the lab, um, it, it's hard to pick one because we, we have a lot of different studies going on. But I think one of the big questions that uh, is out there, um, you know, is in the area of cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular risk. And a lot of this goes back to the changes in cholesterol that happen with the ketogenic diet. So of course, you know, the, 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 the boogeyman LDL cholesterol yes. and, uh, you know, the, I don't want to sound, you know, too conspiracy theory, but I mean, the, uh, you know, the brainwashing that's gone on with LDL cholesterol just being, you know, the cause of heart disease, um, yep. and the ultra focus on lowering LDL as a, you know, target to reduce heart disease. Well, let's, I, let's just say that's probably been overstated. <laughs> totally. Uh, I mean, there's like a well, manic focus on lowering LDL. But let's be honest. That's yeah. what most physicians worry about. So yeah. and we've done, I, I think it's fair to say more work on cholesterol responses to ketogenic diets than anybody. I mean, that was my first study 
back in the late 90s was was focused on that and we pretty much measure that in all our studies and so yeah there's this on average ldl cholesterol will go up uh, compared to a low-fat diet in most people and there is a subset of people where it goes up pretty dramatically um and uh so that bothers a lot of people um anyway the the big question is what is the long-term risk of that and um and, you know, and the bigger question is how does a ketogenic diet affect, you know, risk for cardiovascular disease? Because at this point, yeah, we can reverse type two diabetes. We've demonstrated that, that that's amazing considering the scope of that problem, but no one's actually done a study looking at hard endpoints. It's all intermediate, you know, biomarkers. Um, so in other words, no one's actually done a study looking at mortality hard endpoints yeah cardiovascular events like heart attacks um or even hospitalizations so um i think moving toward those kinds of studies which are very you know challenging they they probably require a long duration obviously very expensive but those types of studies i think really need to be done um to probably bring this into the mainstream i mean some people's minds are just never going to change I think there are a lot of people on the fence trying to look at this objectively. And if we had some data in in that area, that that'd be huge. So we are studying ketogenic interventions in patients with heart failure now. Um, Uh And we'd like to hopefully follow those patients over a long enough period of time where we can obtain some of these harder endpoints. Yeah. Uh, Now that data is not going to be available anytime soon, but um, we've been trying to lay the groundwork um, to get those studies off the ground. Um, in the meantime, you know, we will have some interim data on just cardiac function and improvements in other biomarkers, which is great. Um, but again, I think moving toward those hard endpoints would be really yeah. important. So that's really exciting to me. And hopefully, in, you know, in my career, I'll be able to contribute uh-huh. yeah. to uh, some studies that, that, that get at those answers. A lot of questions about that, and sort of along those lines. Just while we're while we're on this topic, uh, I know people like uh, Nick Norwitz and Dave Feldman and Ron Krauss, who we were part of an editorial uh, on lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. Right, so <laughs> you have like triglycerides down into like the 30s and 40s, uh, and then you have LDL up into like the five six hundreds, right, and ApoB elevated. So in the context of lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, what would your cautious recommendation be on how to manage patients who have, for example, uh, very low uh, uh, triglycerides, very high HDL, uh, every cardiometabolic you know marker, including HSCRP, is like you know bottomed out, uh, blood pressure low, all that stuff. But their LDL and ApoB are two to three times above the high end of normal. So what do you, I get so many questions about this and what do you do if you have a patient, if you're researching him, do you do, do you pull the trigger and do a statin intervention? So what does Jeff Volick <laughs> do in this context? My cop is I'm a PhD, not an MD. So I yeah, <laughs> yeah. defer to the physician. Your team. Yeah. yeah. But no, you're right. I mean, I, yeah, I did get so many questions about this too. I mean, we actually published a study you know, from our fasters cohort you know, on their LDL cholesterol. So these were elite ultra runners. 
you know, super healthy, super insulin sensitive, presumably super healthy, um, uh, and elite, you know, elite performers. Um, and yeah, their LDL cholesterol is twice as high as the, uh, as their high carb counterparts. So, um, uh, yeah, it is, it is a bit of a paradox. Um, and this is why I think that, you know, that long-term study needs to be done because I don't have, I can't point to a study that shows there's no risk associated with that. Now, yeah. if I, you know, you put a gun to my head and you ask me to speculate, um, it's hard to imagine that this isolated increase in, in LDL uh, is, is, is harmful when every other biomarker and indicator of health is, is in the normal range. Plus, there's functional roles of, of cholesterol yep. that are likely important, um, you know, for for just doing the level of aerobic performance that they're doing and the oxygen consumption and just the high rates of fat uh, utilization going on in these athletes that, you know, cholesterol serves a very important role in the body to move fats around. Um, so there's, there's reasons yep. why it's probably elevated. So I would tend to think that it's it's not harmful. But again, given the you know the paradigm around LDL cholesterol, it's hard not to be a little worried about it. Um, and certainly yeah. mainstream physicians are, are worried about it. Um, so how do you manage it? You know, it, it, it's a difficult question. Yeah. Um, all I can say yeah. is if, if it were me, um, I probably wouldn't do anything about it. Uh, so I wouldn't yeah. be worried about it. Yeah. Probably, yeah. You know, keep an eye on it too. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and do a coronary calcium score and, you know, do intimate thickness. I mean, there's many things that you can do along the lines to sort of yeah. catch it, but yeah, just curious about that. Uh, another maybe loaded question. Let's stay on the theme of, uh, controversial questions. Uh, we have a question in the context of weight loss, specifically weight loss are low carb ketogenic diets superior to higher carb diets for fat loss when protein and calories are equated. So uh, some this keeps surfacing and there's just like endless debates about this that I stay out of on Twitter. But so in the context of weight loss, are low carb diets superior to high, car- high carb diets for weight loss? And I, I'm usually, yeah. I'm not that super interested in weight loss that much and more, more like neurological effects, yeah. but curious well, here. Yeah, it it's a um, it's a good question, um, and I think you know there's some people that are doing some good work in this space, like David Ludwig, who's tried to yep. answer this question around, you know, is there uh, a metabolic advantage of a ketogenic diet? And there are certainly physiological reasons how it could happen, um, and uh, whether or not it happens in the real world. Um, Mm-hmm. It's a different question. Uh, the problem is, you know, these are really, really, really hard studies to do in the lab. I mean, even if you do a controlled feeding study, which David has done on a pretty large scope, they're not metabolic ward studies. So people can still have the food provided and then throw it in the trash and cheat. So you still don't have 100% confidence in exactly how many calories someone's consuming. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I think um, if you are able to control calories, truly control calories and, um, and manipulate carbs and, um, and fat and keep protein constant, um, 
on average, I think you, you do tend to see pretty similar weight loss, I think, in most studies. Yeah. Um, you will see different metabolic res responses in terms of yeah, glycemic control, activity, or, yeah. lipid, you know, uh, biomarkers and so forth. We've demonstrated that in many studies. But here's the kicker in the real world, um, and this is you know what matters, I think, is that w w the real uniqueness and what stands out when you put obese people on a ketogenic diet is they spontaneously or naturally restrict calories. Yes, you inadvertently with less, with less perceived effort. So, you know, yeah. because their brains are being fueled by ketones and they have improved yeah. fuel flow, they become much more prodigious fat burners and all these things, you know, decrease cravings and allow them to feel better in the context of caloric restriction. So you, I do think you see much better uh, compliance and outcomes in the real world, but a lot of that might be attributable to the decreased satiety and, and, and the fact that they are able to restrict calories more easily, um, yeah. you know, in, in that, in that way. So that, you know, but if you, if you are able to study this in the lab and control calories, not that there aren't certain people, again, I, the other point I would make is, you know, if I've learned anything in 25 years of doing human research is there's huge variability between people. And so there, there very likely may be a subset of people that you put them on a ketogenic diet and they just, you know, waste energy for some reason. They uncouple or something mm -hmm. and, and, they are, and you are able to translate caloric restriction into much greater weight loss. Yeah. Yep. So um, uh, the best study to demonstrate this, I think it doesn't get enough attention, but these classic twin studies that um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bouchard and Tremblay did back um, a couple of decades ago, where that, that was truly metabolic ward studies where they did underfeeding, overfeeding exercise studies in a metabolic ward in identical twins. And what they showed was that, and this one experiment is fascinating. They had people exercise. I think they, they made them cycle for about 600 extra kcals per day. So a couple hours of cycling. And uh, then they fed them their calories that would maintain their weight if they weren't cycling. So, you know, they were burning an extra 600 kcals per day for several weeks. And they got about seven sets of twins, I think, that completed this uh, the study. And... Uh, what they showed was that that extra 600 kcal deficit translated into wildly varying weight losses. So wow. yeah. I think if you take, you know, 3,500 kcal is one pound of fat loss, which obviously that has problems, but just on the surface, you would have expected the, uh, that, that 600 kcals over several weeks would have translated into something like seven or eight kilogram weight loss what they showed was there was there was one twin pair that lost almost that much there was another mm -hmm. pair of twins that basically lost no weight and these people yeah. were being fed and monitored there's no cheating going on here this is uh this yeah. is stuff you'll never see published again um so what what was interesting is you had wildly varying weight losses in response to this caloric restriction induced by exercise but the the, the within twin concordance was much higher. So if if you were one of these, if you if you were one of the participants that lost only one kilogram, so did your sibling. Uh huh. But what it shows is the ability to translate exercise into weight loss in this case. 
is highly dependent on your genetics. These were uh, monozygotic twins or yes. not? Okay. Wow. So I would say the exercise intervention caused metabolic adaptations that I would say enhance metabolic efficiency. And that exercise induced enhancement of metabolic efficiency may have preserved you know, energy either through T3, reduced T3, or it's probably hormone, probably a multifaceted sort of yeah, array well, of what, things. Um, <laughs> what they published a couple of years later, because I don't think they wanted, it wasn't a popular result, but and this is not a popular uh, statement in the exercise world. Um, but what, what accounted for the majority of that was uh, resting energy expenditure. So what they showed was oh, that, yeah. Yeah exercise actually decreases resting energy expenditure which most yeah. people are just the opposite if you exercise it increases but on yeah. average it actually in the context of caloric restriction decreases energy expenditure more yeah. if you exercise decreased efficiency so or increased right. efficiency right uh a de if it's efficiency, inefficiency it, it decreased their yeah their resting energy expenditure so yeah. they're burning less calories at rest after exercise and uh, this has been shown in several uh, metabolic ward studies actually at least at least four or five studies that were published many years ago but not really you know pop, not really popular statement because most people yeah. want to think that exercise increases your metabolic rate um, so uh, yeah but one could part of the the, the the explanation is related to how exercise impacts metabolic rate yeah, one could say that there's an enhancement of mitochondrial function and a decrease perhaps in uncoupling. And then that that could, you know, cause a preservation of, of energy. Uh, I remember when I was younger, just force feeding myself carbs and tons of protein and working out if I would eat a meal, I would be like a furnace and burning and sweating and just like, you know, that doesn't happen now you know, as I'm approaching 50, like I don't have that metabolic furnace kind of like effect if I eat a meal, like, and that's sympathetic nervous system, there's different hormones effect there. So I, I think I do remember dieting and then, you know, being in a caloric state, restricted state for three months. And then that whole response was like pretty much attenuated, right? I was like cold all the time. So I think maybe I there's think some adaptations there. Not only is there a lot of variability between people, but even within a person, you know, over the lifespan, you, you can see yeah. you know, responses to ketogenic interventions, responses to exercise can, can change quite a yeah. bit. I mean, in general, carbon tolerance goes down as you get older. So, you know, yeah, you kind of interpret that as, you know, as you get older on, on average, more people need to be conscious of carbs in their diet and yep. probably you know, be on some type of lower carb ketogenic intervention yeah along those lines i want to get some of these questions female athletes uh who are perimenopausal or during menopause there's actually no data on this what advice would dr volick give for uh older females you know uh that are experiencing you know middle age that are experiencing perimenopause or menopause are the diet recommendations different especially in the context of athletes yeah, you know, that's um, it's an area we haven't done a lot of work in, but I have um, a research scientist in my lab right now who's really interested in pursuing changes in, in menstrual uh, status uh, with ketogenic interventions, because we have observed um, 
some changes uh, in our study, just on a you know observational kind of level. We haven't formally studied this. There really hasn't been too many people that I'm aware of who have have mm-hmm. focused on on this and women's health in general. So um, yeah, I don't have you know I don't have any really enlightening answers there other than um, I think it's a fruitful area for uh, okay. study, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll be uh-huh. an opportunity to do that. Yeah. One question that comes up because there was a study published and I just posted about this on uh, Facebook or Instagram is uh, the during resistance training or following a ketogenic diet reduced the bone adaptation changes associated with resistance training. And then there are some studies that people were sending me about uh, bone health in general. When you're in a state of ketosis, that mild metabolic acidosis causes a leaking of the calcium from the bones and so, you know, they sent me enough data to say, okay, I, I was due for my DEXA scan. So I got a DEXA scan on Monday, but my bone density was like, kind of like off the charts. And I've been doing it for, you know, more than 10 years, but then again, resistance training may be mitigating the effects of ketosis. But I was wondering, do you do DEXA scans in your subjects? Have you done that long-term? And do you look at, you know, body composition changes? Yes. We kind of talked about that, but specifically changes in bone density. Yeah, that, that issue does come up. Um, and I think you're you're right to focus on bone density because if you look at some of these acutely changing markers of bone turnover, you know, I don't think they're necessarily good correlation with long-term yep. density. They're yep. kind of butterflies in the wind. They change mm-hmm. uh, response to a lot of things. So trying to interpret that can be challenging. Um, but the real answer or the real question is, you know, what's happening to your bone content yep. bone density over the long term. And I'm not aware of any long-term data with ketogenic interventions that indicate loss of bone mass or bone density. Mm-hmm. Um, now we haven't done a lot of long-term studies over multiple years um, to be able to track that. Um, so we don't have that data either. Yeah. But um I, I'm a I, 10 year study. Yeah, there's yeah. N of ones. Um, yeah. you know, same same for me, but I've got the confounder of resistance exercise too, which I think is you know, yeah. huge important um, you know, effect on on, on bone density. Um, yep. so um at least we can say N of two then. <laughs> yeah. Pain and follow ketogenic diet, I don't think you're at risk for osteoporosis. Uh, it does come up with organizations like NASA, for example, when, you know, this, this concept of putting someone on a diet that has a 50% increase in energetic density, which could be favorable logistically for a number of reasons. And, you know, for a, a myriad of health benefits, but the, the pushback is kind of, uh, kidney stones, but also bone health, bone density. So, you know, I do think more data needs to be done. From my understanding, there's maybe a little bit of loose associations in the epilepsy world, but there's there's not really good data. And then they're not lifting weights or doing any kind of intervention either. Uh, but it but it comes up. It's something that has been put on my radar again and again. The bone health and bone density things, which yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think there's good data out there. You know, definitively, you know, mm-hmm. counteract it. But I don't see it as a big concern, you know, yeah. as far as my understanding of the underlying physiology. Um, it's kind of the same thing with kidney function. Uh, I mean, people will, will say the higher protein and, and the concerns with kidney function, but 
you know, number one, their ketogenic diet is not high protein. If it was, it yep. wouldn't be ketogenic. Um, but uh, having said that, no one's really studied uh, renal patients. Yeah. So we're actually doing that too. Our, we're focused on polycystic kidney disease. So we have a great um, We're getting underway in, in that population. And there's actually a lot of reasons to think you not only will you not have a negative effect, that it'll, you'll have a therapeutic effect in this population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Evidence that ketones are positively affecting renal function. So um, I'm glad yeah. you're studying that. Several yeah. people I know have that. So yeah. many questions, Don. You know, people have to realize that. Um, you know, for the last 50 years, all the nutrition research is focused on low-fat diets and Mediterranean diets, and very little funding has gone toward ketogenic interventions. So, we, yeah. just, despite our, our efforts to try to, you know, do that work, um, you know, there's just so many questions that we don't have answers to because there hasn't been a lot of funding to study this. Yeah. Well, in the context of exercise, uh, there's a question here. Does Jeff, does Dr. Volek agree with Dr. Noakes that starting out a marathon or ultra marathon is best to do fasted to avoid bonking or hitting the wall, uh, due to greater percentage of energy output coming from fat. So in essence, if you're preparing for a marathon and you're training low carb, should you increase calories prior to the event to being a fed state, or should you actually fast a little bit more to go into a fasted state? I, you know, I, I don't think you've, I don't ever remember that being discussed and it's a good question. And I thought about that too. Um, yeah, you know, it was very, very little published work in athletes yeah. uh, just kind of set the stage. Um, so a lot of what we're talking about is hypothetical and what we've observed empirically uh, with athletes and, you know, Tim Noakes is when, you know, going back to your first question in the interview about people I admire, um, Tim Noakes is right up there in the top three. Uh, he's just a huge mind and, you know, had the courage to admit he was wrong most of his career and you scientists of his caliber, um, you know, would, would do that. Um, so he's a huge mind. I love, I love Tim. And if I, you know, I don't, and this is kind of, Tim's latest thinking around this topic, and I think he's right because I've had the um, opportunity to co-author some papers with him, is that in the context of you know, prolonged endurance exercise, um, what's really key in you know, staving off fatigue is preventing hypoglycemia yep. and not glycogen depletion, which has kind of been the current thinking. Um, yep. And so, um, you know, the way low carb fits into this, I think, you know, there's obvious benefits of low carb for long-term endurance exercise, because the most fundamental adaptation is you become a much better fat burner. And if you have access to your own endogenous fat stores, you don't have to consume as much exogenous nutrients and you can fuel, you know, the intensity needed to perform at a pretty high level with fat primarily. Um, but at some point you still might reach a level of hypoglycemia. So I think the kind of current thinking as far as uh, putting a, you know, an approach together is that, um, you know, following a low carb diet during training um, and then introducing enough exogenous carbs just to prevent hypoglycemia. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, what just having worked with a lot of these athletes and studied some of them, and, and this is just what they had come to on their own self-experimentation, is that a lot of these high-level athletes are consuming a small amount of carbs during, maybe before and during uh, exercise. Um, I won't mention names, but I mean, uh, someone who's, you know, done quite exceptionally well in the ultra world set records um you know their protocol was basically consume uh i think it was 50 grams you know 25 or 50 grams of carbs per hour which um you know that's either 100 a little over 100 kcals probably yeah it's 25 grams actually i think per hour so that's 100 kcals per hour of glucose coming in uh you know Assuming at the pace they're these elite athletes are running, they're probably burning at least six, seven, eight hundred kcals per hour. Yeah, it's still a fraction of their total energy expenditure, and it's getting yeah. oxidized very quickly. Not really promoting an insulin response it's... or inhibiting fat utilization in any way. But I think intuitively, what's happening physiologically, and these people figured out, is that it's maintaining their their glycemia. Yeah. It's allowing them to primarily use fat for fuel and yep. it's preventing bonking and, you know, get, giving them more efficient fuel supply. So uh, is this a, like a high molecular weight kind of resistant kind of starch, or can you accomplish the same thing with like, you know, fat and can you consume you know, long chain fats, yeah. maybe MCTs, things like that? My experience um, is athletes have all different sorts of ways to get those yeah, or cocktail. In. Everything from you know Skittles to um, the, the 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 slow absorbing high molecular weight starches like like yeah. you can, um, yeah. which are more slowly absorbed. So I don't know if so much the form is as important as you know just providing that little trickle of carbs in to prevent hypoglycemia. But anyway, you know I'll attribute that kind of new way of thinking to Tim because he's done a pretty exhaustive analysis of old studies and and kind of come to that conclusion. And I think he's probably right. He usually is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in 1992 and 93, when I got into mountain biking, I was using a product called Cytomax. It was alpha L polylactate. I had just bought creatine and, and twin lab also sold this like orange flavored MCT thing. So I was actually using, I wasn't using key. Well, I was using MCT, which is like ketones. So I was using ketones, alpha L polylactate and, uh, creatine. And then, yeah, the Cytomax actually has some glucose polymers in it too. So 30 years, more than 30 years ago, I was actually, you know, I was just, my mind was just like, not just one fuel, but just do like a dual fuel approach. And I still like, no one's actually studied that. And I think that would be an interesting research question. Yeah. I remember the, I, I, I purchased that Cytomax project product too. And yeah. I don't know if they're still around. <laughs> they have a patent on I I this is I actually got interested in lactate in my my postdoctoral uh and there was some patents around the the alpha L polylactate, I believe. And somehow I got steered. I read Cahill's article in 2006, his review, and that kind of steered me towards ketones. But the lactate is something I, I want to revisit, like different ways to deliver think, um, lactate. Yeah, lactate's so misunderstood, the whole misnomer of lactic acidosis, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, if you actually look at the reaction, lactate dehydrogenase reaction, it consumes a proton. 
So mm-hmm. it's yeah. alchemizing. Yeah, well, yeah. If that is yeah, a yeah. in mind. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, please, people don't don't ever use the term lac- lactic acidosis. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, yeah, hydrogen ion goes up as well as lactate, but it's, you know, yeah. it's kind of like an innocent bystander. Lactate's actually doing a lot of positive things. So, um, you know, I, I tend to think I wish more people would be interested in studying lactate dynamics, yeah. you know, okay. the key adapted state, because I think there's a lot of positive adaptations happening to move lactate around more efficiently in the keto adapted state because it's it's a great way to move carbons around um increase energy for your brain too when you exercise your lactate goes up in millimolar concentrations and your brain has free access to that energy so i think there's good cognitive benefits associated with exercise that are probably due to that yeah, and you know, my understanding is lactate moves through the same transporters as the yep. ketones do, so it wouldn't be surprising. Yep. You know, those transporters are all upregulated, so not only are you moving ketones yep. around, you know, providing a, a uptake into cells, um, you should be able to move lactate around more efficiently yep. too. And so, uh, a lot to it's another to, project. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just a few more questions. I know we're coming up on time, maybe one or two more. Uh, so you talked about, you know, things that changed your mind in the last 25 years. What would Dr. Volek change his mind on in the last 10 years is a question someone asks. And uh, kind of along those lines, do you intend to update, this is two questions, do you intend to update the version of the art and science of low-carb performance uh, so, cause that was written quite a while back. So has your mind changed, not go, not 25 years ago, but in the last 10 years, has your mind changed and specifically maybe pointing to that book, uh, would you change any guidelines within that book? Yeah, well, I, I don't think my mind has changed as much as I feel like the last decade, uh, there's a lot of confirmation <laughs> Yep. That you know, uh, when I got into this 20, 25 years ago now, I mean, I really sh- became interested in studying this in the mid 90s. So, um, you know, I think I, I was on the right track because of the, the data that have now continued to pour out are primarily positive. So, um, mm-hmm. I don't plan on doing a 180 on anything that I can think of now. Yeah, <laughs> the nuances of all of this are a lot more complicated and. You know, now you've got the exogenous ketones and you just, there's just so many nuances to everything that, um, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's humbling uh, how, uh, how complicated it is. But uh, uh, on a simple level, we, we have really good data now that ketogenic interventions can be very therapeutic for epilepsy, for diabetes, and hmm. probably for a lot of other conditions. Um, so that's super exciting. Um but we still have a lot of foundational research yet to do. Uh, as far as the books, um, you know, I think the um, we'd I'd love to update the books because it's it's hard to believe they're a decade old now. Uh, I think there's a lot of great content in there. Um, yeah. Really enjoyed working with Steve, who um, you know, who really wrote a majority of, of the text for both art and science and low carb living and performance and. Certainly enough new data to warrant um, ver- new versions, but it's just such a bear to write 
you know, uh, a book, um, especially when I have a fully functioning lab that is more active than we've ever been. So I guess, unfortunately, I'd say don't hold your breath on a update anytime soon. But I will say Steve and I talk Blame about you. maybe, yeah, okay. maybe, uh, maybe that question has inspired me to <laughs> yeah. prioritize updating those books. Um, okay. It's, uh, it is fun to work on that and uh, really pleased that, you know, it reached a lot of people and maybe yep. help convert a few people to be more open-minded about low carb. Yeah. I, I've bought probably three dozen at least from Amazon and give them, given them to people, gifted them to people. Okay. Uh, two more questions. The penultimate question, because I have to ask it. I get so many people ask seed oils. So seed oils are fat. So uh, what is your kind of stance on seed oils? I get this question. It gets too much time in my opinion, but it is, it is one of those questions that if I didn't ask it, people would be mad at me for not asking you about uh, the the potential for seed oils to be causing mitochondrial damage and then uh, perhaps just inflammation and being something in the food system that's toxic. Do, do you agree with that opinion? Well, in the context of the ketogenic diet, we do uh, part of a well-formulated ketogenic diet. We focus a lot on uh, quality of fat and yep. not much mm-hmm. on quantity and and the, one of the main, um, you know, issues there is that, um, you know, because fat's your primary, you know, f- uh, source of energy on a ketogenic diet, you know, you're eating high amounts of it, especially if you're in a weight maintenance ketogenic diet, um, you want fats that are, you know, good fuels, because that's its primary role. Um, and it turns out polyunsaturated fats are not good fuels. Yeah, the essential fats are polyunsaturated, but you only need gram amounts of those dha um, epa ala yeah, yeah so uh, that's a, a lot of fish plant oils, now. yeah mm-hmm. you know which you know is a you know is a real problem um for folks that just go to the grocery store and buy mayonnaise and salad dressings which typically are soybean oil based and that that's a horrible source of fat on a ketogenic diet so um you know we uh, we advocate for more of the natural fat sources from animals um, yep. that's beef, you know, chicken, yep. uh, or dairy fat, all, all of that, you know, is relatively low in poly and high in mono and saturated fats. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as far as oils go, um, olive oil, um, coconut oil, avocado oil, yeah. are excellent sources of low polyunsaturated fat on ketogenic yeah. fat. And even yeah. like the plant oil industry is recognizing this and shifting more towards, you know, uh, monounsaturated fat from the oils, like, you know, uh, yeah, high oleic sunflower oil, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last question. Cause this is probably the most common question I got. How do you play expo- explosive sports like basketball, MMA, on keto, I have been fine uh, on resistance and endurance, but struggle with explosiveness. So I don't know. I do powerlifting, but my workouts are usually like just twenty minutes, and I don't. There's no no negative effects that I can observe. But uh, you know, a lot of CrossFit athletes, a lot of basketball players, MMA things like that. You undoubtedly get this question a lot, and I don't remember an answer to it. So. Um, so what are your thoughts on yeah, I mean well it hasn't been studied. Sports. We haven't really studied that population either. Yeah. Anecdotally, I think 
some athletes over time adapt and are able to do it, um, you know, and it may be a matter of uh, incorporating some exogenous sources, much like the ultra endurance athletes do, yep. because you can run into hypoglycemia as a mechanism of fatigue during high intensity exercise too, or explosive if you do it repeatedly. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to um, managing minerals too. You know, if you're not yep. replacing enough sodium in your diet on a ketogenic intervention, it causes all sorts of problems um, that, yeah. because of the naturetic effect. It, Yep. stress response, you know, aldosterone, epinephrine go up and that causes you to waste potassium and all of that can affect muscle and nerve firing and so forth. So um, that's where this concept of a well-formulated ketogenic diet that you know, incorporates not just kind of the carb and protein intake to get into ketosis, but also management of minerals and so forth are really important. Mm -hmm. So, um, but even though, I mean, it, it may not be the ideal diet for explosive sports. I mean, if that's, yep. if performance is your primary metric and by which you, you know, want to measure things. Um, but I do think um, for a lot of athletes, the improved uh, power to weight ratio helps a lot with explosiveness. Yep. So if you're able to maintain your muscle mass and rate of force development, but you weigh less, yeah. that can be yeah. uh, you know, that can be an important factor, um, you know, whether it be a football lineman, you know, uh, anecdotes, yeah. they've used ketogenic diets and they've lost a little weight. So maybe they have less mass, but they're quicker. Yeah. And, For all athletes. I mean, you're storing, if you're carb loading that those carbs, like glycogen is holding water, whereas fat is anhydrous and it's not, you don't have, you have energy, <laughs> but you don't have the kind of the water to go with it. So Jeff, yeah, that was pretty much in line with what I thought you're going to say. And, uh, thank you so much for your taking time out of your day from the lab for, for doing this. We appreciate the metabolic health community appreciates your time and effort into this. Uh, it's my dog's barking in the background, <laughs> but, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thanks again for your time, Jeff, uh, real quick, where can people find you? Are you kind of online or <laughs> in the social media not world? Not so much as most people. Yeah, not, I didn't think yeah, so. Not, not a, in the lab, publishing, media. PubMed. <laughs> Focus on the lab, yeah. So yeah, we're, we're very active in the lab. So I guess, you know, we're trying to pump out papers and contribute to the body of knowledge and I appreciate you um, and all the work you've done scientifically, but also know about Health Summit and, you know, and all the work you're doing to, uh, uh, promote other people's work. So, you know, thanks for the opportunity to do the podcast. And, uh, I do try to do a few of these with credible people like yourself. So, uh, appreciate that. We appreciate it, Jeff. Well, thanks for being a speaker at metabolic health summit. You know, you're going to, you're scheduled for the next one in January, 2020, uh, January, uh, 2024, I think January 25th is when it begins. And, uh, people listening to this can get their tickets at metabolichealthsummit.com. Uh, Jeff, again, thank you for your time and your expertise uh, sharing this today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Metabolic Link podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to like, share it, subscribe, and leave us a comment or review. This really helps us improve the podcast, and we really appreciate your feedback. Thank you.